0: Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
1: US and China postponing weekend trade talks. The latest on the geopolitical fallout plus an exclusive interview with Jared Kushner and a conversation with Senator Chris Coons, the Democrat from Delaware, on the United States Postal Service and what the heck is the latest up there on that impasse on Capitol Hill. We made it to Friday, folks. We're going to cover every angle US, China. We're going to talk about the impasse up there on uh, Capitol Hill. Uh, But first, an exclusive interview with Jared Kushner about how that Israel-UAE deal came together. Take a listen to what he told me.
4: Yesterday was really a historic day, and it was an honor for me to be a part of such a momentous breakthrough. It was the first peace agreement that we were able to see in the last 26 years. The last agreement we saw in the Middle East was between Israel and Jordan in 1994. And we've had a lot of problems in the Middle East since then. So President Trump's leadership, he outlined the vision for what he wanted to see changed in the region between, uh, between 2017 and today. And the hard work of the last three and a half years helped bring this forward. So uh, I do think that this will change the paradigm. People in the Middle East were very uh, resigned to the fact that things were not going to change. Everyone was very able to tell you what the problems were. Uh, but nobody was able to find solutions. What President Trump came in is he brought fresh approach, he reestablished the alliances uh, and we strengthened the alliances with Israel and UAE and Egypt and Jordan and everyone throughout the region. And by taking a very serious, no-nonsense approach, uh, to deal-making, President Trump was able to make a breakthrough that nobody's been able to make before.
1: UAE officials have said their phones essentially have been ringing off the hook in terms of back-channel talks and whatnot. I'm curious, have you spoken with MBS uh, with, uh, since this has been announced? And do you think, and I know you're not going to broadcast here, but do you think other Arab states could follow suit here like the Saudis?
4: you want me not to break news on your show? I would love if you broke news. No. <laughs> uh, so one of the great things we did yesterday is we were able to keep it a secret. And uh, the president's tweet is really what broke the news. And people were surprised that a deal of this historic magnitude was able to stay quiet. Uh, we've built a lot of trust with people in the region. We have tons of discussions uh, with people ongoing. We've had them for the last years. And uh, people are very, very positive. I think the press in the region has been quite positive. People are seeing that uh, that the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed step really was a historic step forward. Uh, He's always been a leader in that region, and a lot of people want to come very close behind him because they realize that by taking this step, it will make the region more secure, more economically prosperous, and it also will help the Palestinian people in the long run.
1: Have they agreed to purchase new uh, military weapons from the United States, like drones, for example? Or can you give us anything about the purchases that they will make from the U.S.?
4: Yeah, so we have an ongoing uh, relationship with uh, the United Arab Emirates as well as with Israel for uh, a long time. They're one of our closest military partners, and so there's always ongoing discussions about uh, how we can strengthen the relationship, create more interoperability between our forces, and obviously there's the common uh, enemy, uh, not common enemy, but you have Iran right now uh, who's been threatening uh, UAE, been threatening Israel, been threatening America, and then funding a lot of the proxies, uh, fighters that are causing instability throughout the region. So uh, security's never been more important, and we're always in discussions with our allies about how we can uh, continue to advance and make progress uh, to make sure that the region can become safer.
1: The last time we spoke, it was following the announcement of the Middle East peace proposal from this administration, and one of the uh, items outlined in there is the two-state solution. Prime Minister Netanyahu says uh, that he will not have annexation in the Western Bank for the time being. How crucial of a... uh, will this deal unravel should Prime Minister Netanyahu ultimately in the longer term pursue annexation.
4: Look, Prime Minister Netanyahu is a visionary leader. He's very tough. He understands uh, what's important to the Israeli people. But most importantly, he understands what's critical to Israel's security and Israel's economy. And so uh, right now, he believes that it's much more important to strengthen the relationship with United Arab Emirates and other uh, regional Arab countries and to figure out how we can create uh, that, that cross-pollination between the populations. And by doing that, I think that you'll see uh, that will make Israel Israelis safer. So when he gives his word on something, I take his word.
1: The other week I was speaking with Jason Greenblatt, a previous administration official here uh, at the White House, and he noted that there had been some optimism, some hope in terms of how Palestinians and the Israelis were working together on COVID-19. Not all the way, but some areas, and especially how the economic situation because of the pandemic uh, and the medical situation in both Israel and Palestine has forced them to relook at things regarding water, cybersecurity and technology. However, the Palestinians really denounced this deal. At what point do you have to put additional pressure on Palestine in order to get them to broker that that Israel-Palestine deal, yeah, no.
4: we don't want to pressure pal- the, the Palestinian people. And, and look, I think a lot's changed over 25 years, right? People have seen that a lot of the approaches haven't worked. Uh, people want better lives for their children. They want to live in peace. They want security. They want economic opportunity. I think that that's just the natural evolution. People are tired of conflict, tired of war. The Middle East has had problem after problem after problem. President Trump's come in. He's recognized the realities on the ground and he's tried to sort them out uh, as we go. And so, with regards to the the Palestinians what we did is we laid out a good vision for what could happen we got Israel to agree to a Palestinian state we got Israel to agree to uh, potential borders uh, through a map that we published and we have the uh, we created a conference in Bahrain where the international community came together and endorsed our plan to provide fifty billion dollars over ten years to double their gdp create a million new jobs and help them have a better quality of life so when you see uh, denouncements and disagreements i think that the people the israeli people and the palestinian people are much closer together than perhaps where the palestinian leadership is and so uh, the hope is that over time the palestinian leadership will see that they have so much more to gain for their people and for their legacies by engaging and resolving these long-standing conflicts than by putting out the same tired statements that quite frankly haven't brought progress for their people. I've
1: got two more questions for you one as it relates to Iran from a geopolitical sense you know this Democrats have been campaigning saying that they would rejoin the Iran deal Uh, Senator Kamala Harris who of course was named as the running mate to the presumptive nominee has said she wants to rejoin the Iran deal Democrats say that coalition building is a contrast to the foreign policy strategy of this administration. How important of a role did Iran play in these negotiations? And what do you, what do you, what's your response to those who argue that the Iran deal would, uh, would restore some allies?
4: Look, I think that Americans are smart. And one of the reasons why people elected Donald Trump is because Americans were tired of their politicians making stupid deals. The Iran deal was one of the worst deals that any American diplomat had ever made. It uh, put Iran on a glide path to a nuclear weapon. It gave them $150 billion, which they used directly to fund terror. And, you know, it's not like the next day they said, okay, America's great, let's work with them. The day they signed the agreement, they were in the streets chanting death to America, death to Israel. So I'm not sure what that agreement accomplished other than antagonizing everyone all over the world. So it was a terrible deal. Uh, America made terrible trade deals. President Trump has changed all that. The American people want to see our troops brought home. President Trump has tried to end uh, the war in Afghanistan, he's already per- reduced our troops there significantly. He wants to rebuild American cities. He doesn't want to rebuild other nations. And I think that President Trump, as you've seen through this, uh, a lot of the Democrats have attacked him for his diplomacy. He's going to cause wars. He's isolating. Well, that hasn't been the case. He was able to create a historic peace agreement yesterday that the previous administration and the administration before were not able to accomplish. So uh, I think that with President Trump, you have to separate the media, and you have to separate uh, the political jostling from what he really does. And what he does is he brings a common sense approach. He's not afraid to say what he thinks. And he brings results, and that's what the American people want. So uh, I would just say this. uh, Rejoining the Iran deal on the old terms would be absolutely catastrophic for America. It would be catastrophic for Israel. It would be catastrophic for the whole region. Uh, Because, again, the vision of what Iran wants to see is not consistent with what's in America's interests.
1: Final question. This Kodak deal, temporarily on pause, are you optimistic that this will get back through or is it it just going to end up in a regulatory quagmire?
4: Yeah, I'm not up to speed on the latest with it, but I know that that they put it on pause and that was the right decision.
1: That was my exclusive interview earlier today with Jared Kushner on all things foreign policy. I got to be honest, I could talk foreign policy all day. Geopolitics—it's really a fascinating dynamic, especially when you look at what has been going on uh, with Iran and uh, the the balance of power in the Middle East. It's 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 really. A fascinating issue uh and just to catch everyone up to speed the u.s and china i'm reading from jenny lennon's report on the bloomberg terminal the u.s and china are postponing talks planned for over the weekend that have been aimed at reviewing progress at the six-month mark of their phase one trade agreement people familiar with the matter said coming up i check in with ramesh panaru um Potaruru, sorry. Uh, he is Bloomberg Opinion columnist, senior editor at the National Review, and a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Ramesh, always thrilled to have his insights. He's got a couple of columns I want to ask him about this use of executive power. Do Who did more executive on. power, Obama or Trump? I'm going to ask him. And what's he think of the vice presidential? Pick. We'll dive into all of that, plus the latest on Capitol Hill. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent. You're listening to Bloomberg
0: 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
1: What a week. Sometimes you get to Friday and you're like, Monday feels like a world away, especially with our gang, or should I say, our our. We were talking about Snoopy in the uh, in the break with Christine Baratta, Matt Shirley, our indefatigable sound on team, and Nick Falco running the board. My name is Kevin Surili. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. I hope everybody has a safe, healthy, active, gratitude-filled weekend. Stay cool, hydrate, and keep going. Ramesh Panuru is on the line. He is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, senior editor at the National Review, the historic National Review, and visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's got two columns that I want to talk about. First, I want to talk about executive power. All right, Ramesh. You know, I was, I was interviewing some senators today. Senator Blackburn, Republican from Tennessee. Senator Chris Coons. A Democrat from Delaware. I'll play the Coons tape coming on up uh, in the show. And I asked him, I'm like, why is there still an impasse? And the president obviously had to use executive power on to, to, to kind of... Uh, to kind of make it easier Some of the economic pain the folks are going through And you write In a new Bloomberg Opinion column Quote President Barack Obama's Creative use of executive power Set a precedent That President Trump Is now exploring But what kind of precedent Will Trump's actions set? The good news For those of us Who think that both presidents Overstepped their bounds Is that Trump's executive actions Might not be deft enough To have a lasting effect
0: What do you mean? Well you'll notice that president obama's most criticized executive overreach which was when he unilaterally put through a kind of amnesty for a lot of illegal immigrants that's still effectively in place what president trump is doing on the other hand it's not clear how much of it is going to ever take effect and if so for how long so for example the payroll tax um, uh, suspension of collection that he has put through, it may be – and a lot of people are suggesting that most companies are just going to keep collecting those taxes and sending them on to Washington, D.C. anyway. And this is something that is time-limited so that the money still owed in January – uh, it's a much more it's a much more limited thing, and it's one that really wasn't sort of thought through to make sure that it would last.
1: Okay, I hear you on that point. And when I talk to ambassadors, when I talk to folks who deal frequently with the um, foreign foreign governments, they say, you know, other governments have the luxury of being able to respond more quickly than the institution. Of our beloved Congress, and I guess from when when you look at most notably China and their ability to provide liquidity to emerging markets, their ability to fund their Belt and Road Initiative, to look into Africa, clearly I'm not arguing that they are making um, positive deals, but their ability to go so fast does it put the United States at a disadvantage because of the congressional checks and balances that we have in place.
0: Well, I mean, it depends, right? So, Congress actually did move pretty rapidly with the CARES Act several months ago, and the Federal Reserve has certainly swung into action. You know, not everything that either institution has done has been perfect. It's- you know, given the speed, there's a trade-off with how effective uh, and efficient everything is. Um, it's really just the last couple of months that we, and even as, even more, especially the last few weeks, that we've run into a very serious kind of uh, political slowdown. Uh, you know, but this is the the. the, the worry that you are raising is one that has often been raised in competitions between free democratic systems and more authoritarian governments. It's the sort of contrast that people drew with the Soviet Union uh, back in the day. Um, and I think we've already seen that some of the trade-offs are sort of undermining China. So, for example, uh, I think that they actually didn't get a lot of goodwill uh, in Europe, um, which they had hoped to get because some of the masks that they sent were defective. And so, what turned what was started out to be a diplomatic coup um, really, I think, backfired pretty badly on them. So,
1: and 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 I hear you, and I think it's a fascinating exploration of. Uh, democracy and the checks and balances on the system. Ramesh Panuru is on the line. He is, of course, a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. He is a senior editor at National Review and a, a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, as well as a contributor to CBS News. And, you know, I, I look at the the in terms of international finance and you look at uh sort of the export import bank and the USAID and 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 other uh investment in, internationally that the United States has tried to to more quickly uh delve into uh to compete with China in Africa and 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 in emerging markets but on this issue of executive power senator i believe it was ben sass right senator ben sass tweeted out or that, that he didn't think that, that President Trump should be using these executive orders, uh, any, whether th- there's a Republican or a Democrat in the office. But uh, he's got to balance that, the president does, with the true, true sense of urgency that millions of American families are feeling and the economic paralysis that they're feeling as a result of the situation we find ourselves in
0: yeah well, I mean there's no question that there's that there is a lot of hardship I'm not sure that that executive the executive actions are actually going to in any serious way ameliorate the hardship that people are going through I'm, i I think that they've come up with a way to extend bonus unemployment insurance checks that probably just isn't going to work that a lot of states are not going to um be able to take advantage of. It's really interesting, though, because in a way, you'd think this was the kind of thing that is tailor-made for compromise. The Democrats want a higher level of unemployment insurance. The Republicans want a lower. Uh, Republicans want less state and local aid. Democrats want more. I mean, that seems like, in principle, it should be amenable to compromise. You just meet somewhere in the middle. And yet even these sort of obvious compromises are things that today's Washington finds it hard to do.
1: And, and switching gear you're right absolutely and and um and in terms of just how how hard compromise is and and the inability in in modern times both in the Obama years and now in the Trump years for there to be compromised because there doesn't seem to be a consensus building opportunity for for folks to to really drive through is remarkable remarkable to say the least all right we've got about Less than two minutes, but I also want to ask you about Senator Kamala Harris, Democrat from California. You say, you write on Bloomberg Opinion, Ramesh, that she's a safe pick. Why?
0: Well, you know, there was a really strong pressure that um, Joe Biden was going to have to choose a non-white woman. uh, And when you restrict the field that way— You've got a pretty small pool, and what he did was he chose the person with the most elective experience and the highest national profile, somebody who's, who's been elected in our biggest state multiple times and could plausibly be president, which some of the other people on his list, whatever their other qualifications, just couldn't. And for that reason, she's a reassuring selection, and I think it is a, a low-risk selection, they abided by the rule, first do no harm. They didn't want to screw it up. They weren't looking, I think, frankly, so much for a big upside because they think they're already ahead, and they are already ahead.
1: We're going to have to leave it there. Ramesh Panuru, thank you so much, sir. It's always great to catch You're up welcome. with you and uh, appreciate uh, all that you provide for our show. Ramesh is, of course, a Bloomberg opinion columnist, go on the Bloomberg Terminal to read all of his reports, and senior editor at National Review. He's a visiting fellow at AEI and a contributor to CBS News. I'm Kevin Cirilli, chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, and coming up, the latest on those budget talks. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.9. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Coming up, we check in with Senator Chris Coons, a Democrat from Delaware. A wide ranging interview and a rare look from a prominent member of the upper chamber about just where Democrats are willing to compromise on the stalled stimulus talks. The big geopolitical story tonight, U.S. and China postponing weekend talks on trade Deal. Jenny Leonard reports on the Bloomberg Terminal. The US and China are postponing talks planned for over the weekend that had been aimed at reviewing progress at the 6-month mark of their Phase 1 trade agreement, according to people familiar with the matter. Chinese Vice Premier Li was supposed to hold a video conference call with US trade representative Bob Lighthizer and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, but it's been rescheduled, get this folks, indefinitely. The USTR's office didn't immediately respond to a request for comment. Wow. And look, the Chinese, they wanted to talk about TikTok. They wanted to talk about WeChat. They wanted to talk about Tencent. And they wanted to talk about the larger, broader issues here that pertain to the implementation of the U.S.-China Phase 1 trade agreement. Remember that the Chinese had agreed to purchase $200 billion worth of of agricultural products over the next 2 years the president over the last couple of weeks as we inch closer to november 3rd has suggested that he's not interested in any type of phase 2 talks between now and then. So we set the stage with Frank Massano, a partner at Bracewell's Policy Resolution Group. He's the former press secretary to several Republican lawmakers on Capitol Hill, including Indiana Senator Richard Lugar and David Tafiori. He is a former Obama campaign foreign policy advisor. David, I'm going to remind myself on this Friday to talk slower. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm also going to ask you what does it mean that the U.S. and China have postponed their weekend trade talks.
5: Well, you're doing great, Kev. And this was a really busy Newsweek, so I do feel bad for you. You have to cover all of this. The China development is very interesting. And it doesn't seem clear why these were delayed. There were a dizzying array of issues that the U.S. and China were set to discuss. You mentioned some of them, including the uh, you know 200 billion in products that China was supposed to buy from the u.s Of course there's always going to be intellectual property issues on the agenda possibly they were even going to talk about some more political type things like Hong Kong and of course the technology companies that President Trump has been complaining about. Any one of those issues could have resulted in some desire by one side or the other to delay, or maybe it's just a COVID-19 delay, which all of us are experiencing. But this isn't good for the economy, and this isn't good for U.S.-China relations. And by the way, it's not exactly good for President Trump, who wants to show he's gained some uh, benefits for the U.S. out of this difficult relationship between the U.S. and China before he goes to the polls and voters go to the polls in November. And he doesn't have a lot to brag about, especially with these talks being derailed. I want to
1: follow up because I'm not sure. I mean, when, when I talk to sources on the president's reelection campaign, Frank, they don't they, they view going against China as a political asset right now, at least in the short term.
3: Yeah, no, I, I, listen, I think that this has been a fit and starts process from the beginning of the the Trump presidency, he came in you know uh, at like a house of fire and going and going to be challenging. China, those guys who helped elect him in Michigan and Pennsylvania and places like that, the guys that we know well, Kev, because they're from where we're from, you know, yep. they, they they like that, and they like this battle, and they like the ongoing battle. I don't think they get caught up in the details as much, and the details are always going to be messy, right? So I don't think it hurts him on the campaign trail, because the fact, he, and even Wall Street will admit that he has taken China on probably more. More aggressively than any other president and whether he succeeds all the way or not he has made some progress and continues to push forward you know i look at what he's done with the agriculture piece and you know how that how that will play in the Midwest, you know, he's already struggling with the ethanol issue. He's struggling now with, uh, with, uh, with, the, with the the derecho that hit there and the impact that that's had on the corn prices and, and, and cornfields. And you know, there are many good things he can do in those arenas. Um, but you know, one of the big benefits that he gets in this China fight is uh, that he's working to get their products sold over there. So a lot going on. Uh, I don't think the details really matter that much, as long as he looks like he continues to pressure them as much as possible.
1: You know, I want to go broad and, and dive into the policy with David Cefiore, uh who does policy better than anyone. Uh, uh, what, oh, of course, just like Frank. Um, but <laughs> um, but Senator Kamala Harris, Democrat from California, um, David, she had introduced the legislation bipartisan in the Senate a couple of months ago uh, that would allow for the United States to go after individuals in China who steal U.S. intellectual property. The reason I bring it up is because if you start to look at the broader policy implications of what a Biden administration would do uh, with China, I mean, it's not like they're going to totally reverse course when it relates to 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 intellectual property. I mean, th- this, that, that portion of this is nonpartisan. Am I wrong?
5: No, I agree with you. And I agree with you and Frank that the American people support a tougher stance against China. Kamala's uh, you know, bill proposes an interesting way to also try to fix this situation with respect to China stealing our intellectual property. You know, the, In many other ways, the U.S. extends our law way far outside of the u.s to anyone who we think is violating u.s laws we use we do this in terms of human rights and in terms of terrorism so it's sort of a natural uh, extension to use it to also go after those who are robbing american businesses and stealing intellectual property i think biden will continue many of the trump initiatives with respect to china but Perhaps, hopefully, we can hope we'll have some more success because Trump hasn't had that much success. For all the bluster, what we really just have is you know easing of some restrictions, a commitment to buy 200 billion in goods and, and services from the U.S., which actually hasn't happened yet, and trade talks that have been stalled. And we also have Trump capitulating on some very serious political issues. He told uh, the president of China it was okay to keep building uh, camps for Uyghurs, internment camps. Um, he's praying. We'll get there.
1: We'll talk that. We'll talk about that coming up. Stay. Panel stays. David, Frank, they stay. I'm Kevin Cerilli. Much more coming up next. You're listening to Bloomberg 991.
6: Dot .com.
0: Steifel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
6: Man on my friends,
1: we all miss summer. They say we stand for
6: nothing and there's no way we ever
1: could. I love this song. My name is Kevin Cerulli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. John Mayer, waiting on the world to change. Happy Friday, folks! We did it. We did it. Second verse. Such a good verse. Uh, Frank Masano's on the line. That wasn't the second verse. That was the first verse. Frank Masano's on the line. He's a partner at Bracewell's Policy Resolution Group, former press secretary to several Republican lawmakers on Capitol Hill, and David Tafuri, former Obama campaign foreign policy advisor. I want to talk stimulus, but David, I wanted to let you finish your point about these canceled U.S.-China trade talks.
5: Well, the final point I was making is just that Trump has not made enough progress on the economic and trade issues. An example of that is that now the trade talks are stalled again, and the $200 billion in purchases that China promised of. U.S. goods and services hasn't happened and may not happen. But he also has failed on political and human rights issues with China. He encouraged President Xi to keep making and building internment camps for Uyghurs and massive human rights atrocity. And also, he's failed to really stand up for those people in Hong Kong who want democracy and want to continue to have their rights and their voting rights and to continue to keep that great – place for trade and economy going, and that is really at risk right now, in part because America hasn't done more to confront China and Hong Kong.
3: I mean, hey, uh, Kev. Let me just you, add. I I, I I don't disagree with David too much on that. Although I do think those are tough issues that are going to be part of of a long battle, and they've been tough issues that have been part of this battle for for four years now. But you know, Trump really behaves more like a, a Democrat on on this issue and this engagement, which gets back to your previous question as to why Kamala Harris and many others have um, already. Uh, have similar views, so you don't see uh, him having similar views to the business Republican business types and the Chamber of Commerce uh, in in engaging China, um, and so that's why I think you'll see you know and and and. and there's always more progress that needs to be made with china and i think no matter who wins this election coming out you're going to see that similar type of engagement it, it you know it may just be done in uh in 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 a way that joe biden has handled these things uh over the years versus w- with the brass knuckles type of thing that that trump has has kind of tried to impose
1: i i want to say what the other side will say just because i feel like we should represent. I mean, they're going to say, Secretary Pompeo would say that he's been out front on the Uyghur concentration camps and opposing them for a long time and that they signed that law uh, for uh, with regards to Hong Kong and revoking status and whatnot and, and as a special trade status. So, I mean, that, that's what they would say. But I hear you. I mean, I hear your points that, that both of you are making. Let's pivot. Can we pivot to domestic politics when we talk about policy and the economy and on the lack of they're not talking to—no Ch- one's talking to China, and no one's talking on Capitol Hill. It's a silent Friday. That's the story. The sound of silence. That's the story today. Because Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Speaker Pelosi will not be negotiating with Secretary Mnuchin nor Mark Meadows on the issue of the deal. Coming up, I'll play for you in my interview with Senator Chris Goons. I don't know why, Frank. I mean, I said this to Carly Fiorina when I was filling in on the anchor desk for our, um, for our colleague David Weston today. I said, Carly Fiorina— I mean, in the private sector, you can't go home on vacation. You can't go home on vacation if the job's not done. you got to stay until you get the job done. And and this isn't even a political—I mean, this isn't even a Republican or a Democratic question. But why—how are they not negotiating
3: a massive uh, deal— I have no idea. I am, um, uh, you know, having been around as long as I have, um, watching these things uh, all the way back into the Newt Gingrich uh, era when in before when you know Newt Gingrich was uh, trying to shut down the government in '95 to make a point, and it failed miserably on him. I, I think this hurts both sides dramatically. I think both sides think that it, think that it hurts the other side more. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I you know again, and part part of that part of it. Tells me that the Democrats may be a little more right because of the way the polls are in the presidential race right now. Um, Democrats certainly have less to lose than Republicans do um, uh, in some of these close races that are going to maybe be dragged down by um, by uh, the top of the ticket uh, in, in in some of these purplish states where they have tough Senate races. So you know, again, I, I just if if you're Cory Gardner, if you're Doug Jones, if you 're any of these members in 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 tough races and tight seats i don't know how you know you the the leadership of both parties lets them walk away uh not having anything in hand to go back now maybe there's some mystery that i don 't know about um, but you know again it it seems it seems awkward that this is happening. The president I think thinks he's uh, resolving some of these issues by some of the announcements and executive orders he he's made, whether they're legal or not. You know, I think there's some question about that. But, you know, he he's looking at that from a messaging standpoint. Um, and, you know, his announcement yesterday of the $3,400 as uh, another uh, way that he, he's trying to pressure Democrats a little more. So, um, again, w- I don't understand why they're doing it. But, you know, I think both sides think they have an advantage, and perhaps both sides don't.
1: I I just it's it's so tough for me to to cover this as a process story and to and to look at the polls because I I I know I, with I don't want to on a Friday sound like I'm on a on a soapbox but David Tufier I mean you don't have to you don't have to be a political scientist and you don't have to be a, a political pollster to understand just the the million the the magnitude of this moment that we're in and, and I find it completely perplexing the president was asked about it at his press conference earlier today uh, by a reporter. And uh, and he said, I mean, his, his argument was, well, it's just too much money. I mean, they're trillions of dollars apart. I, I, I just think it's a failure all around that no one is staying here, that there's no commission, that there's no gang of eight, that there's not sitting in a room and talking about trillions of dollars of taxpayer money. It's insane to me, David. It's insane.
5: Well, I agree with you. And I think Frank covered the dynamic really well. I would just point out that Right after COVID nineteen happened, there was extraordinary amount of cooperation on Capitol Hill. They passed the initial stimulus package without a lot of discord and they were able to compromise quickly. And with each package there's been more discord and more disagreement and more gridlock. Yeah. And now we get to this one and they seem unable to do it and they're not even working as yeah. you pointed out. And I think the voters must be thinking, I mean they're gonna. Those who are in close races, like Frank said, those members of Congress in close races, they want to bring something back, but the voters may not remember the. Initial They're not
1: gonna remember. Much more coming up next with the panel. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg one. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. That's Keen. You are young. I interviewed Senator Chris Coons, a Democrat from Delaware, earlier today about the U.S. Postal Service. Take a listen to what he told me about a letter he sent to the Postmaster General.
2: I want to hear that the Postal Service has the resources and the staffing it needs to handle a surge in mail that's associated with this fall's election. Uh, Every state so far that has had a primary in this COVID season Has seen an increase in the number of folks uh, taking advantage of absentee or mail-in ballots. Uh, President Trump just requested a mail-in ballot for uh, him to cast his vote in Florida. Um, There's no evidence that it leads to an increase in voter fraud, but there is evidence that it leads to an increase in mail volume. So uh, the new Postmaster General, who I'll remind you, was a major donor to Trump's campaign, and is a longtime uh, Republican supporter. Um, has made some very big moves in terms of replacing senior leadership, changing some of the delivery standards, uh, and ordering a realignment of some of the bulk mail processing equipment in the Postal Service. Um, I want him to justify and explain these actions um, that in some way are related to a change in mail volume and make sure that we have enough resources and staffing available for what will likely be a dramatic increase uh, in mail volume associated with ballots.
1: Do you think that the United States is prepared right now for November 3rd for the
2: increase in mail-in ballots? I'm concerned about two things, Kevin, with our November election. One is the mail-in ballots. Um, In Delaware, we just had our presidential primary. Uh, Surprise, Joe Biden won. Uh, But half of the ballots were cast by mail. We've seen that pattern in state after state. Um, And that means there needs to be machinery both for the state election commissions or the county election commissions or boards to be able to count and process those ballots and for the Postal Service. And then second, I'm concerned about um, the increased likelihood of cyber attacks, foreign attempts to influence our election. Uh, All senators have had a classified briefing where we've heard from folks from a wide range of uh, elements of our federal law enforcement and intelligence community agencies uh, predicting significant foreign activity, particularly from Russia, but from other countries as well to try and influence this fall's election.
1: Do you think moving forward in the long term that the United States should adopt policies that other countries have adopted in creating some type of elections commission or that
2: nonpartisan in terms of better protecting brick and mortar infrastructure around elections? Uh, Well, Kevin, uh, we do have an election assistance commission. It was created after the 2000 election. Uh, Remember those famous hanging chads and the weeks of uncertainty about the outcome of the 2000 election? Uh, After that, uh, Congress distributed to the states about $4 billion in assistance uh, to buy new election systems. And the Election Assistance Commission, um, which comes under the Appropriations Subcommittee, where I'm the ranking Democrat, um, is actually an existing but at times um, barely functional commission. Um, it, like the Federal Election Commission, which enforces election campaign finance laws, um, struggles with partisanship and uh, with making timely and decisive decisions at times. What we really need, Kevin, is not one unitary national election system. We need the resources, um, both from uh, intelligence and protecting us against foreign intrusion and for the financing and purchase of equipment from the federal government to flow down to state and county election boards and commissions.
1: Speaking of partisanship, still lawmakers at an impasse in terms of that next round of economic stimulus. You've actually been pushing with Republicans for a provision that would allow for there to be more funds provided to micro small businesses. Are you confident
2: that that is going to make it into the deal? Kevin, that is a provision that's strongly bipartisan. We had a hearing on the Small Business Committee, boy, now two months ago in June, Uh, where it was clear there was agreement. We've got still $130 billion unspent in the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, It has um, closed for the moment in terms of new applications. That just happened last weekend. Uh, And Senator Rubio and Senator Cardin as the chair and ranking of the full committee um, have agreed with me um, that we should have another round, uh, that we should have a a rapid uh, additional round that is easily accessible to the smallest businesses and nonprofits. Those that took the biggest hit in terms of revenue, uh, I think that's an important piece of continuing to open our economy and to provide support for people to be uh, employed or rehired.
1: Senator, it's a transpartisan policy, it's with bipartisan support. And yet, I, I ask you this respectfully, but you look at partisanship at the top line view that has dominated this impasse all around. From the left to the right to the White House. And I'm curious, when is this breakthrough going to come, especially now that the Senate has been adjourned until the first week of September?
2: Well, it's enormously frustrating to me, Kevin. Um, you know, I could go through the back and forth who shot John of it, uh, but the reality is there is a trillion dollar gap between what the Democrats, in particular, Speaker Pelosi and Leader Schumer, uh, and Mark Meadows from the White House, and Um, Secretary Mnuchin are willing to accept Um, and the biggest part of that is a gap in support for state and local governments. Um, I think we could easily come to a resolution to ensure that it's not used to fill uh, gaps that are associated with pension funds that Republicans in the administration have claimed were mismanaged. Um, We've got a massive amount of need because there's dramatic revenue shortfalls in every state, county, and municipality in the country. We've already seen more than a million and a half public employees laid off. There's gonna be, it's predicted to be as many as five million laid off if there isn't another round of assistance. Let me just remind you, Kevin, these aren't faceless bureaucrats in gray buildings. We're talking about the teachers who teach our kids in school, the paramedics who come when we have a car crash or a heart attack, uh, the nurses and orderlies who work in public hospitals. Um, Lots of these folks are gonna face job losses if there isn't another round of federal support for state and local government. That is the biggest piece of that unresolved gap.
1: Finally, on the normalization of ties between Israel and the UAE, uh, what will that mean for the broader U.S. policy in
2: the region? Uh, well, frankly, overall, I think it is positive uh, to begin um, easing the isolation of Israel from the region. Um, to have This is just the third Arab country uh, to recognize and begin normalization uh, with Israel. What was announced the other day was just an agreement in principle. There's a lot of details to work out. Uh, But in some ways, the most important part uh, was a suspension of um, Prime Minister Netanyahu's um, movement towards annexation, unilateral annexation, uh, of uh, land in the West Bank. Uh, To do so would have uh, finally shut down any possibility of a two-state solution. I strongly support a two-state solution and oppose unilateral annexation that would have foreclosed any possibility Uh, of a Palestinian state. It's important that folks uh, pay attention to the details of the statements made uh, by the UAE uh, Ambassador Al-Taiba, who I uh, know and uh, appreciate his uh, hard work on this, um, which was that they continue uh, to support the Palestinian cause. Um, This was an important um, tripartite agreement between the United States, uh, Israel, under Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, and um, the UAE. And I do think it'll contribute to some reduction in tensions in the region. And I hope it'll be followed by other recognitions uh, by other Arab states. And how would a Biden administration handle this particular issue? To to rally allies. Um, One of the challenges uh, with the way that President Trump has conducted foreign policy is he's used the tool um, of tariffs um, to essentially beat up some of our closest friends and allies. Uh, It has distanced us uh, from countries like Canada, Germany, um, Sweden, France, uh, the UK, Uh, Japan and South Korea, uh, because the imposition of national security-justified steel and aluminum tariffs, for example, um, have caused some real economic tension and some political tension. Uh, In the Middle East, uh, we have a range uh, of partners and allies um, who I think could be brought together. Uh, But a resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian issue um, is an important contributor uh, to full stabilization of the region. Part of what's happening here is that the Uh, The Emirates, um, the the UAE, um, really view Iran as the biggest issue in the region. The tension between Sunni and Shia, between um, the the radical uh, regime uh, in Tehran and what they're doing in the region um, is a more pressing security threat than their concerns uh, about the unresolved Israeli-Palestinian tension. That's a development that's been underway for more than a decade, and I would expect a Biden administration would continue. Um, to work with our vital ally, Israel, and with our regional partners uh, to try and achieve further um, stabilization uh, and improve security uh, through resolution of some of these longstanding conflicts.
1: That was Senator Chris Coons, Democrat from Delaware. I'm Kevin Cerulli, Chief Washington Correspondent. You're listening to Bloomberg 991. on a hill castle on a hill sorry i knew that ed sheeran i can play i taught myself to play this on the guitar this is ed sheeran castle on a hill my name is kevin ceruley i am the chief washington correspondent for bloomberg television and for bloomberg radio when i was a kid driving up in Delco, uh i would listen to y100 and i feel like i host a radio show but this is, it's it's like political economic policy you know but what i listened to was like not that but anyway, funny how it all works out. I'm incredibly grateful, though, of course, for our indefatigable team. Nick Falco on the boards, who's playing DJ. We're going back and forth in the chat of all of our songs. And uh, Matt Shirley and, of course, Christine Barata for closing out a very busy week, a very busy week. And thank you for following along, for listening, for um, for listening, for for helping us. I'll navigate through this time and of course our esteemed panelists Frank Masano, partner at Bracewell's Policy Resolution Group, former press secretary to several Republican lawmakers, and David Zafiore, former Obama campaign foreign policy advisor. I was texting with him in the break. I said, I'm so sorry, David. I've had to cut you off twice in the last hour. And he goes, I'm getting a beer at 5.50, Kev. So you better you better get ready for the, <laughs> for the Friday show. What song, gentlemen, are you listening to on repeat this week? Or what songs? Because music has been what's getting me through the pandemic. David, what are you listening to?
5: Oh, wow. That's a tough one. Um,
3: I'm mostly listening to Rolling Stones this week, okay. the old stuff, the bluesy stuff.
1: All right, yes. all right.
3: So I tend, you know, my tastes, Kev, are a little harder. I tend to listen to, you know, the Metallicas. But, you know, I've really been stuck on one week by Bare Naked Ladies this week for oh. whatever reason, which, of course, is a little bit more uh, poppy and fun. So Who doesn't love uh, the Bare
1: Naked Ladies? You absolutely. know, and they're I great. I
3: saw them in a show like last year at Meriwether Post when they were there. And uh, it was super entertaining. It was really fun. So, there,
1: I, so the song for me this week that I've been that I've had on repeat. Let me. I mean, I had a lot because I, I literally all I do is listen to music before I prep for interviews and for the show. Impossible Year by Panic at the Disco. Summer Highland Falls, Billy Joel. Everyone knows I've been on the Billy Joel kick. Dying in L.A. Panic at the Disco. Um, some John Mayer and Five for Fighting. Slice by Five for Fighting has been my most played song this week. Slice by Five for Fighting.
3: And, hey, I don't bust in on your um, bubble there, Kev, but Five for Fighting and hockey, of course, not <laughs> going well for the Flyers today with a 5-0 loss to the Montreal
1: Canadiens. It's just – thanks. <laughs> Happy Friday to you too, Frank. <laughs> Well, the Caps go tonight, so you know they could go down 0-2. At least the Flyers are 1-1 right now. Okay, well we could we did this whole we had this whole segment planned on uh, on sports and uh, college football and everything that was going to go on with the advertising and corporate media and everything, and then we got a Jared Kushner interview, so (laughs) we killed that (laughs) whole segment. Um, But we'll revisit that, I promise, because it's a really fascinating fascinating local story too. All right, gentlemen, tell me one thing that is on your radar and make it good because it's friday and we got to be interesting we got to be interesting on friday who wants to go first frank i'm picking up actually david's gonna go first because i always i've cut him off twice in the show so just go ahead yeah yeah, go go ahead ahead, david
5: well i'm thinking about our other officers in blue that's our postal workers our letter carriers senator coons mentioned this issue a lot but it's just stunning that the postal service has become controversial and that there's a threat to reduce support for the Postal Service, something that we've all depended on for so long, and we're going to depend on even more come November because so many states are choosing to do mail-in ballots. I really hope this gets settled, that we can work this out, that people have a choice either to go to the polls or to send in their ballots, and if they do, that our guys in blue and girls in blue and women in blue can deliver them on time so that they're counted. Blue lives matter.
1: Okay, but you you have so much foreign policy experience, especially in the Middle East and whatnot, and and, and you're—I just—in when in terms of the infrastructure, shouldn't—and I asked Senator Coons about this, but shouldn't there be a, a larger— institution or a larger agency that is is nonpartisan and and you know almost like the federal reserve but for elections you know and 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 i'd say it half kiddingly but these are conversations that should have been having should have been had years ago and we should be thinking about elections 20 and 30 years from now to protect those elections shouldn't we david
5: I think we definitely need that. I think we learned that in 2000, as Senator Coons alluded to, with the recount that every state is different. There's, It's just a, a, a morass. It's crazy. We now have foreign countries like Russia in 2016 trying to interfere in our elections. so this is needed more than ever. But the problem when you can set up a commission like that is even those commissions oftentimes – become partisan and i've seen that in some of the uh, developing countries where i work so you have to set it up right there has to be a, a defined system to ensure that it remains bipartisan you're going to need really um, ex- distinguished leaders to, to take part in that in order for people to give it legitimacy
3: Well, and this is not partisan, Kev, but, uh, you know, the Oregon uh, folks who have been voting by mail for many years said, you know, early on that, hey, you just can't drop out of a hat and expect to be able to vote by mail. There is a lot of hard work that has gone into this over a long period of time. So, you know, we're in for, you know, who's going to have to really adjust to this is going to, it's going to have to be the media, those guys who are used to, you know, having set a panel of seven folks, uh, that and and making calls in the middle of the night, you know, and and the evidence of that is what happened in the New York races uh, for for uh, uh, Congress and you know the Kentucky race uh, for for the Democratic Senate nominee. We didn't know the winners of those races until ten a week to ten days, even longer after those elections. So. You know, that's and that's just the 16th District of New York voting and, you know, the Democrats in Kentucky voting. So when you apply that nationally, it's going to have to, you know, we're going to have to look at things differently, I think, or else, you know, it's going to be perceived poorly on both sides.
1: All right, so that's what's on your radar, too? Or do you have something else? Well,
3: that, actually, that wasn't what was uh-huh. on my radar. But, um, you know, what's really on my radar is what you were talking about earlier, which is sports and the economic impact of sports and what it does and how see, it's perceived yeah. in the political environment and things like that. And obviously, I'm affected by it as a college official who has had a fall season taken away. Um, but, you know, th- this really does translate into uh, a political problem, I think, for the White House. So that's one of the things that I'm, I'm really curious keeping a close eye on as we go forward and how many of these uh ohio state football games and the economic impact from not having penn state or ohio state football games how that affects the psyche of voters in those states that uh you know that president trump has has won in the past and you know again i, I think it only adds further challenge to um where he, he you know the, the hill he has to climb and you know again In January of this year, I would have told you with the economic state of the country, the president was going to be tough to dislodge despite all his warts, personality warts and and the way he handles things in chaos. But, you know, since uh, March, I think the country has taken a completely different turn and has created an environment that um, has allowed uh, um, Vice President Biden uh, to just kind of Watch the you know the president and implode and and I think yep. that's he's benefited from that dramatically and he would be smart mm-hmm. to keep benefiting it from dramatically um, yep. and you know with Kamala with 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 uh, Senator Harris now he he has a real good cheerleader and a person who can really step up and uh, defend the cause uh, in a way that maybe we'll he see. Before.
1: Yeah, and we'll see. And again, those conventions kick off next week. My thanks to Frank Massano. My thanks to David Sefiori for hanging out with me on this Friday, diving into the policy, the politics, and the personality. Conventions start next week. If you're around 7.30 p.m. Eastern tonight, tune into Bloomberg Television for a rebroadcasting of my special on mail-in voting. This is a great song. This is a great song. Have a great weekend. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg one.